Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, it's the Dirty Dozen Night. And to help us chronicle the making of this MGM classic of 1967 is New York Times bestselling author and film historian Dwayne Epstein, who has written Killing Generals, a terrific new book on the making of The Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time. Welcome, Dwayne. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. And joining me as my co-host tonight is award-winning documentary filmmaker, film historian and screenwriter Steve Mitchell, my frequent co-commentator on many American war film Blu-ray releases. Welcome, Steve. Uh, good to be with you guys uh, and uh, happy to talk about one of my favorite World War II adventure movies. I mean, I mean, this movie just keeps cooking. Uh, this is past weekend was Memorial Day weekend and TCM ran their war movie marathon for two days. And what popped up yesterday on TCM or the day before was the Dirty Dozen. It's kind of become a staple. It's like bacon and eggs. You bet. It's it's one of those movies that you can almost bet money on that TCM is going to be running it uh, every Memorial Day. And, you know, not really very surprising given the cast and its pedigree and how it sort of permeated pop culture. Um, one of the things I thought was great about your book, Dwayne, was <clears throat> the sort of the way the cast, especially Marvin, kind of looked at the movie. You know, he didn't, he couldn't see the forest for the trees on that one. I don't think he really thought much of it. Um, it might be interesting to talk about why and how the other cast sort of, you know, I think they enjoyed themselves. It was a grueling shoot, and you can talk about that. But what was it about the movie that didn't have the same resonance then that it does now. Well, part of what you just said is um, I, I hear a lot of the fact that Lee Marvin didn't like the film, and that's kind of an urban legend. That's actually not true. That's he great did, to know. He did like the film. The thing what he didn't like was the premise. Understandably, he thought the premise was completely non-believable, that the military would never do what that he was asked to do in the film, to train 12 convicted prisoners, convicted of violent crimes, to go on a suicide mission. He thought that was rather ridiculous and far-fetched. Far However, he did like the execution of the film. He got along great with Robert Aldridge. Aldridge was one of his favorite directors. He worked with him three times. And he was one of the people who went on record early on that he did not have any problem with the violence, the extreme violence at, of the end of the film, of the uh, bl blowing up all the Nazis and supposed innocent civilians, uh, the prostitutes who hung out with Nazis, which you wonder how innocent they are. Um, but that aside, he thought it was not only um, acceptable, but he, um, he would often quote in interviews the bombing of Dresden um, the bombing of Hiroshima, that, that innocent people die in war. It just happens. It's not, nobody likes it, 
but he was aware of it. And he said he had no problem with that. Unlike uh, John Wayne, who was approached to do the film and turned it down, turned it down for several reasons, but that was one of them. He, he, he gave a memo. He sent a memo to the film's producer, Ken Hyman, just railing against everything the movie was about, saying that um, it must have been written by some sandal-wearing, long-haired college freak carrying a sign against the war. He, he should be fighting himself, uh, which is interesting because the book was written by a 66-year-old screen veteran, Nunley Johnson, co-written. He wrote the original script. Lucas Heller uh, um, re rewrote parts of it. But, well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the script because the sure. film, the film is not a, you know, by 1967 we'd seen a thousand World War II movies, um, you know, they they'd worked every permutation you could get to. There was something that was kind of really a palpable hipness to this movie in terms of the dialogue and the attitude. I was reading one of your chapters talking about Jim Brown. And the whole dealing with the racism side of it and his attitude towards the white soldiers. And it seemed very much of the moment. I mean, this is 1967. It's a very volatile moment in American history. The, the war in Vietnam is, is blowing up. The, the cities are, are writhing with racist uh, banter and protests. And it's the whole mid-60s craziness. And out pops a war picture that seem, even though it's taking place in 1944, and by the way, anybody who's listening tonight, uh, we're gonna we're gonna dig deep into this movie. We're gonna not gonna hold back. So if you've never seen the Dirty Dozen, go out and find it, and then watch the, listen to this podcast afterwards, because uh, we've each probably seen it 170 times, and we'll probably see it 170 more times. But and by the way, by the way. See the movie definitely and read my book. And read read Dwayne's terrific book, which will be a terrific cap on the experience. But talk a little bit, Dwayne, about the um, and he's showing the book cover. And of course, in audio, we can't see that, but it's <laughs> it's resonating. But talk a little bit about that screenplay and how it turned from what could have been a traditional World War II movie, and there are plenty of those, to the Dirty Dozen. Oh, I'm glad you asked that, Steve. Um one of the early uh, uh, comments made by Robert Aldridge to producer Ken Hyman was when he read the script, which would later be revised more than once, by the way, um, several times, he, he told Ken Hyman, this is a great script for 1945. This, however, is 1967. He, said, he, he went on to use an interesting metaphor. He said, um, 1945 war movies were ice cream. This is 67, war is cancer. What we've got here is cancer. And he wanted to make it as, as up to date. And as you mentioned a moment ago, as hip as possible. And when the film was done, he went on to say in interviews that the creation of, you know, there are some movies when they're made, they're often ahead of their time and they're not successful. Or sometimes they're way behind their times and it, they're cliche and it's a joke. The release of The Dirty Dozen when it came out was the perfect storm which was the phrase um, Aldridge used. He said, there's no way when we were making this movie that we would have known that the war in Vietnam would have escalated as much as it did and would escalate even more. And by 1968, when the film was still in theaters, the streets of America were on fire. 
um, with with anti-war protests, with uh, um, rallies and and uh, demonstrations in uh, race relations, um, the so-called generation gap, all of these elements and more political unrest in terms of the way the government was handling things. And, and, and it was the beginning of, of most citizens starting to distrust their own government, which would really come together more during the Watergate years. But all of these factors came together to make the Dirty Dozen a monster hit. You know, that year was an impressionable year in terms of American filmmaking. It was a sea change in the way things were done. It was the year of Cool Hand Luke in the Heat of the Night, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, uh, you name it, all these really important social change movies. And the one that made the, most, made the most amount of money that year was The Dirty Dozen, which, yes, it was a popular film um, with audience, but it also had a statement to make. Um, it had several statements to make, but chiefly, it was extremely anti-military. It wasn't necessarily so much anti-war, maybe a touch of anti-social, but it was definitely anti-military. Well, I would go you one further and say that the movie was anti-authority in general at a time. Very much so, yes. A time when the whole country was dealing with an anti-authority backlash. Um, I think that it's interesting uh, to have 12 prisoners as your main characters we're obviously Lee Marvin is the main character, but the 12 prisoners are also main characters and each of them has a problem with authority and to, to some extremes. I mean, Maggot, the Telly Savalas character is just a plain old psycho. Yep. Uh, I think I agree with, um, uh, I think it was, uh, it was a Dale Dye who said that he would not believe they would send these guys on a mission like that, or maybe Lee Marvin felt that way, but- No, they uh, both did. <laughs> They both separately had made that comment, you know. Right, right. And of course, Maggot was probably the one who shouldn't have gone within 20 miles of that <laughs> chateau. Um, tell us a little bit about, I, I mean, it's funny, you, Nunnally Johnson wrote the first script. I interviewed Nunnally Johnson back in the 70s. He, uh, he wrote um, The Desert Fox for uh, Daryl Zanuck. So I, I spent some good time with Nunnally. I don't remember talking to him about the Dirty Dozen, but he he was one of Daryl Zanuck's fair-haired boys at Fox. I mean, he right. had written some big pictures. Grapes of Wrath. He won, he won the Oscar for the Grapes of Wrath. Won the Oscar for Grapes of Wrath. I mean, this is Hollywood royalty. But as you point out, uh, 25 years later or more, uh, he was writing in that style. So Lucas came in. Tell us a little bit about Lucas Heller. I mean, what... Uh, what did, where did he come from? Well, Lucas Heller was actually, Robert Aldridge, like many great filmmakers, liked to use the same people a lot, not just actors, but um, crew members and what have you. And he was kind of a stock writer for Robert Aldridge. He had written and won, I think they call it the Edgar Award for the screenplay to um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And he had also written um, um, the follow-up, um, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, and one of my favorite Robert Aldridge movies, uh, The Flight of the Phoenix, he was, you know, he was the go-to guy for Aldridge. And because Aldridge found Nunnally Johnson's, you know, version of The Dirty Dozen. And by the way, by the time Nunnally Johnson came out to it, it had already had three other uh, uh, attempts at um, a screenplay, including the novel's original author, E.M. Nathanson, had written a draft and several others. But... Um, the thing about Lindley Johnson was that he was hired by Ken Hyman 
because Ken Hyman and he were friends. And when he had told the higher ups at MGM that he wanted to hire uh, um, Nunley Johnson, the executives at MGM said, yeah, but this guy writes comedies. He writes, you know, comedy musicals, like How to Marry a Millionaire. And Ken Hyman was very quick to point out, who I interviewed, by the way, wonderful man. Ken Hyman was very quick to point out, you know, Grapes of Wrath is not exactly a laugh fest, okay? And this is the guy who wrote it. And <laughs> one of my favorite comments was by Nunley Johnson himself. He was extremely pissed off that um, Nunley Johnson redid some of his work. And he took it to arbitration with the Writers Guild, which, you know, is very much in the news right now. But he didn't want Lucas Heller to get any credit. But they wound up splitting the credit. And he was asked years later if he had ever seen The Dirty Dozen. And being a classic, you know, fast-thinking writer, he said, no, I've never seen it and I never will see it because I'm like the expecting father. While you're in the waiting room, you're kind of not sure if you're the father or not. <laughs> so... He never saw it. And by the way, it wound up being his last screenplay. He had written several others, but they were never filmed. So The Dirty Dozen was his last official screenplay. Well, Steve and I have talked about this ad nauseum, about Lee Marvin being the ultimate male in Hollywood in so many ways. And in fact, uh, the, the, today, uh, we, we wonder where did all those guys go? Because we have a lot of pretty boys in Hollywood. I mean, good actors. I'm a Brad Pitt fan. But Brad Pitt is not uh, Lee Marvin, thank you. Uh, neither is George Clooney, although I you know, love George Clooney. But um, you, you're like, uh, you've spent most of your life digging into Lee Marvin's life. I mean, you wrote the quintessential biography of Lee Marvin. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we love Lee Marvin. Uh, I have to say, though, in reading your book, it's amazing that Lee Marvin got through this movie because this guy was drinking up a storm every night, it seems like. How, how did they get through that? Okay. One of the people I was lucky enough to interview was a gentleman named Bob Phillips, who's also in the movie. He plays Corporal Morgan. He also has one of my favorite lines, just off quick, was that Bob was hired to play Corporal Morgan when the script he had read to be hired for, he had a bigger role in the movie. He had a much bigger role in the novel, the character. But they kept cutting it back and cutting it back. And ultimately, he wound up telling somebody, Army Archer, I think, he wound up telling him that Charles Bronson has more lines on his face than I have in this movie. And <laughs> Bronson hated that. He asked Bob Phillips, did you really say that? And he goes, no, no, no. Uh, the reporter made it up. <laughs> he didn't want to piss off Bronson. But um, Bob Phillips had another job, and he was on the payroll with this job. Ken Hyman said he was uh, Lee Marvin's bodyguard which is believable knowing Bob Phillips' resume. He was a pretty tough character. Isn't he, was the, he an ex-professional football player? Among other things, he was also a police detective. He was the personal bodyguard to Adley Stevenson. During the Marines, he was a self-defense a self instructor. I mean, he was one tough guy. And in the industry, that job of bodyguard is also called the babysitter. And although the star who's being babysat doesn't like that term, he, um, he, he was the one who made sure Lee Marvin showed up to work each day. Um, and, was he, and one of the ways he was able to do it was the first time Lee Marvin showed up drunk early on during, during production, and Robert Aldridge just said, we can't do anything with him. Let's just shut down and go home. Bob Phillips took Lee Marvin aside and went, look, Lee, you want a drink? I'll drink with you. Anytime after 5 o'clock, 
and I'll make sure you get to the set on time. And on Friday night, I'll drink with you until Sunday evening. But we get to the set on Monday. And Lee, and Lee Marvin said, all right, you got a deal. So when they did go out drinking, they had some pretty fascinating exploits and adventures, which I write about in the book, um, going out to English pubs and causing fun, for lack of a better way to say it. So that's how it wound up happening. Now, what's interesting, too, is that Bob Phillips wasn't in the whole movie. By the time they got to the actual mission at the end of the film, Bob Phillips was done. He went back to the States to do film the whole movie in England. That meant Lee Marvin didn't have a babysitter. And like on the last day of filming, I don't know if I should tell the story because it's kind of a spoiler. Um, and it's one of my favorite anecdotes. Lee Marvin got drunk and really pissed off Charles Bronson. Because well, it was the last. He's supposed to. He's supposed to drive the, the half -track. German half track over the bridge, right? And uh, as you relate very nicely in the book, I don't think it's spoiling anything because there's a lot of these stories. He uh, was roaring drunk, and they got him back to the set with some coffee. Uh -huh. It's interesting. There's. Uh, he takes a very big bullet hit in the shoulder, and I'm wondering if that. <laughs> the whole point is shooting him in the shoulder was the disguise of the fact that he couldn't stand up very well. That that might be, you know, I never thought of that. You, you might be right about that, very observant. What's interesting was Ken Hyman, he told me the story that they kept the crew waiting and waiting and waiting. And then, you know, Charles, Charles Bronson was very anxious to go back to the state because Jill Ireland was there and they were going to get married. And he was waiting long enough. The movie went way over schedule. And because Marvin wasn't there for the last day, Ken Hyman said to me, I knew exactly where he was. He was in a bar in London called, I think it was called the Belgravia or something like that. It was a famous bar, uh, pub, excuse me. It's where the so-called great train robbery was planned of, of England. Anyway, he went there and he said, Lee was on the floor, drunk, singing to himself. It's <laughs> an interesting sight. He said, I scooped him up, put him in the limo, poured him full of coffee, got him to the set. When he showed up, Bronson took one look at Marvin, and you could probably edit this, but I want to say it exactly as Bronson said it. He looked at him and he went, Lee, I'm going to fucking kill you. And Lee was just kind of staggering, and Bronson was like face to face with him. Ken Hyman got between them and said, Charlie, please, don't hit him in the face. We got close-ups. So we'll get it done, believe me. And that's what wound up happening. But it was touch and go there for a while. I've got to ask Steve this because Steve has studied Lee Marvin's work very carefully. Steve, is there any time in this entire movie where you can possibly think that uh, Lee Marvin isn't, isn't totally sober? Uh, well, you know, he's a really good actor. And even though he has that kind of loosey-goosey kind of body English that might come from uh, enjoying his, uh, his libations, um, you never feel that he's not completely there. And I'll, I'll share an anecdote. Dwayne, you might not even know this one. Uh, but when we were doing uh, some extras on the old combat TV show, uh, I talked to a couple of guys who work with him on this episode, uh, season two episode. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. You worked on combat? No, the combat DVDs uh, extras. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. No, I'm not that old. My God. <laughs> Um, no, anyway, be... but I was talk I was talking to a couple of the cast members and and he did an episode in season two called The Bridget Shalom, Bridget which is Shalom. it's a real classic, and he and Vic Morrow are you know fantastic uh, at odds with one another. 
And they used to go out and they used to drink across from MGM back in the day to place, I think, the retake room, I think it was called. Oh, and day. Lee, Lee drank them all under the table. And they all, they said, Lee, we got to go home. We got to, we got to learn our lines. And Lee's going, I'm just getting started. And they were astonished at the fact the next day he'd show up on time. He knew his lines. He was great. They, in fact, uh, uh, Tom Lowell, who played Billy on the show, started carrying his M1 the same way Lee carried his M1. And so I never see Lee, you know, I, I never see any alcohol uh, at work when I see Lee Marvin at work. And and the other, the other thing I wanted to bring up to sort of augments what you were talking about casting is Lee Marvin was voted the manliest movie actor of them all by some guys who wrote a book called The Manly Movie Guide. <laughs> and you had to have Lee Marvin to be the, to be in charge of all of those equally manly movie stars of the time. And I think part of the charm of the movie, it has many charms for many reasons, but it's a great example of old Hollywood and the greatest generation kind of actors that worked in Hollywood. Yep. Because, you know, you look at Charles Bronson, for example, you see this guy lived a life before he became an actor. Lee, of course, was wounded in the Pacific. Um, you know, guys like Clint Walker and Telly, they all came from the real world. They didn't come from a place of vanity. Um, and I guess the question I want to kind of get to with, with Marvin is, how <laughs> do we have any sense of how he related to the rest of the cast? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Was he was he a guy who felt well? I'm the boss, so I have to be inaccessible. What how did what was his dynamic on the set with with you know his co-actors besides Charlie Bronson who wanted to uh, you know knock his block off? Well, yeah, it should be pointed out too. Marvin and Bronson had a history long before the Dirty Dozen. They had worked together in many films before that, so that's how they that they can interact that way. I can tell you honestly that. I don't think Marvin necessarily lorded it over anybody in the cast because he was number one, the star, and number two, uh, his character was in charge of them. I know he worked very well with the other actors. In fact, one other actor, Stuart Cooper, who played, I think, Lever, one of the lower six, said he loved watching Cassavetes and Marvin work together. And Marvin later told Stuart Cooper, I love doing scenes with John because he gives me stuff all the time. Number one, I never know how he's gonna play a scene. And number two, when he does, I know how to react because of the way he plays the scene. Right. <laughs> so yeah, he, get, he got along with them overall. Um, so yeah, there's that. And more importantly, the man was a professional. He had been in the business for quite a while. It should be pointed out as well that the success of the Dirty Dozen, and then a few months later, the release of Point Blank, that one-two combination punch, made Lee Marvin the number one box office star of, in America of the year for 67. And he stayed in the top 10 for another 10 years. But, plus, plus the fact that he won an Oscar for- uh, uh, The year before, for Cat Ballou. For Cat Ballou, I mean, right in the middle of that. I mean, he was fun. Also, one of our favorite films that you, we've all discussed a million times is the year before he did The Professionals. Oh, I love that which, movie which is kind of like a warm-up for The Dirty Dozen because it's also kind of a mission movie involving guys with certain kinds of expertise. Mm -hmm, and, very uh, much so. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, with, with dialogue, you could bounce quarters off of. Uh, <laughs> um, tell I knew us, a girl like that. I'm tell sorry. us a little bit about um, the casting. Um, 
we obviously we've now heard the word that John Wayne turned down the role. Thank God Lee Marvin got it. But tell us about how some well, of the an important detail that was in the book that I was very impressed with is that that Marvin was Aldrich's first choice. Right. So Marvin was not a consolation prize because John Wayne passed. Marvin was the guy that Aldrich wanted. Right. And the thing was, John Wayne was approached before Robert Aldrich came on to the project. And he was actually very pissed off that John Wayne was approached at all. He had told Ken Hyman, he said, look, um, this has nothing to do with John Wayne's politics. That's his mother's problem. OK, I like John Wayne. He's just wrong for this part. And, and, and but that's all water under the bridge. If we're going to approach anybody for this role. It's got to be Lee Marvin. And I love the fact that Aldridge felt that way. Yeah. The other the other thing, you know, as, as big a star as Wayne was, I think we sometimes forget how big a star he was. Marvin, you know, was at the peak of flavor, as you might say. But also, when you look at Marvin in that picture, look at how fit he is, oh, look yeah. at how he looks in the uniforms. You know, you you have no doubt that this guy's a professional soldier. That's why I think Marvin was like the perfect and the only choice to play that part, because well, he it, wasn't too old. You know, Wayne was getting old. Even a guy like Lancaster was starting to show his age. Even if Kirk Douglas had been considered, not quite so much. He was the perfect guy at the perfect time. Also, also, guys, if John Wayne had played Reisman, it would have been a John Wayne movie. And Absolutely. there's no way in hell this is going to be a John Wayne movie. This, the nice thing about Lee Marvin, even though he was becoming a major star in the world, he was a bit of a chameleon. He didn't have, you know, he was doing all kinds of roles. It wasn't, you didn't recognize him as Lee Marvin. You recognize right. him as the characters he's playing. He's playing... You know, Farda in The Professionals, he's Farda. He's Farda, and he's so effing cool as Farda, which, by the way, The Professionals is another example of a mid-60s Western, like the war picture, Dirty Dozen, where it's, yeah, it's a Western, but it's kind of a hip Western. Right, and it's also, in the record books, it's the very first American Western in which there was nudity. The actress who plays C.C. Chiquita, um, Maria, Maria Gomez. Gomez. Maria, Maria Gomez. Gomez. Right, yeah. She has a nude scene in the movie. I mean, it's not a close-up or anything, but that nobody had ever seen a woman's breast in, in an American and Western. thank God for them. <laughs> Lieutenant <laughs> Cece Chiquita, the woman who never says no. The woman who never says no. Uh, Dwayne, I, I, you know, you, you sort of touched on something that I think is interesting, that both the professionals and the Dirty Dozen were kind of, they were movies that were from like a slightly dying genre. Westerns were still being made. War films, not quite as much. A war films, A level war films. And both of those movies, with their sort of um, modern sensibility. Yeah. Well, also the, the modern sensibility, but also they, um, you know, the whole thing about uh, uh, the being sort of uh, anti establishment. Right. Uh, the That they were, they were very hollywood type movies yet they were becoming they were also very modern movies because of that sensibility and that goes to i think B richard brooks who did the professionals and aldrich aldrich is an interesting guy and maybe you should talk a little bit more about why uh he was the perfect guy for this picture well I'll, if i may i have to say just one more thing about that uh, in comparison to the professionals and um, The Dirty Dozen. There are a lot of things that are very similar in both films, with, like we mentioned, the modern sensibility and what have you. And I love Burt Lancaster's character in The Professionals. They're great. He's, he's very philosophical, and his, and his view of the world is very much like that of a hippie. 
if you think about some, I mean, yeah, he's a mercenary and he's greedy and all that kind of stuff, but he does these great philosophical statements about the way of the world and who are the good guys and who are the bad guys and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think there's also a really good example to be made between the great escape earlier in the decade and the dirty dozen. Now there's only about, I think five years difference between those two films and the, great escape, yeah. And the great escape is a great action adventure film about POWs trying to get out of a German POW camp. But the sensibility of the film, it's, there's a sense of fun about it. And there is humor, you know, Steve McQueen making uh, the fake booze and all that kind of stuff. And then the ending of the film is a rousing adventure, okay? But there's nothing really dark about it. One of the biggest difference between The Great Escape and The Dirty Dozen, The Dirty Dozen is infinitely darker in, in humor, in mood, in attitude. And that shows you what kind of changes were going on socially and culturally in just five years. Now, what's yeah, interesting, it's, a, a it's friend of Charles, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just gonna say, it's funny you should mention The Great Escape, Dwayne, because I'll tell you the point in the movie where it deve develops a little bit of that irreverence is when um, uh, James Garner is fooling around that truck and Werner the ferret comes up to him and starts talking with him. And, he, and then he says, he discovers, he says, oh, you're an American. And then uh, Garner says, oh yeah, and you're a German. That would never <laughs> happen in a 1940s or 50s war movie, not in a million years. So that- yeah, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of my favorite scenes in the, well, the whole movie from beginning to end is my, one of my favorites. But the scene where James Garner is, is talking um, Werner into doing stuff for him. Right. It's a seduction. Oh, know, yeah. The way the way he slowly gets him to come into his quarters, oh, and sure. the way he go, you know, he's like, uh, you know, and this is von Luger's butter. Oh, have some. We got a lot here. <laughs> you know, yes, he's 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 clearly seducing him. So <laughs> so get so get back to Aldrich. Why, as Steve asked, why is Aldrich the perfect director for this? Yeah, and that's a great question. And and by the way. According to Ken Hyman, he was the only choice because, like I said, they had worked on um, whatever happened to Baby Jane. But Ken Hyman told me if Aldridge wasn't available, he had a backup. And that backup was Sam Peckinpah, which I think is interesting. Um, but Barry, that was that was a real revelation in the book. I remember reading that going, wow, you start cool? to think you start to think about the parallel universe version of the movie. <laughs> right. in a sense. Um, Aldridge. You know that thing I said a moment ago about how some movies are ahead of their time and, and successful. Whoops. Um, hello, Dwayne, did we lose you? Audiences and especially critics. Oh, they, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dwayne. We lost you there for 10 seconds. Keep going. Oh, I'm sorry. Aldridge made a lot of movies that were ahead of their time. That's why a lot of critics and um, audiences didn't catch on to his films right away. And by the way, he kept doing that throughout his career. He didn't really give a damn if his movie was, well, of course he wanted to keep be able to get a job again, but it wasn't really about if this movie was gonna be the next Gone with the Wind or what have you. He had a statement to make about every given film he made and he made some of the greats. I think he's one of the most criminally underrated film directors ever. And if you rattle off just a handful of titles, you'll go, oh yeah, that was pretty, oh, the one I mentioned a moment ago, Flight of the Phoenix. Um, he revisited very similar territory to the Dirty Dozen with um, uh, The Longest Yard, the original, um, and underrated uh, the last time he worked with Lee Marvin, Emperor of the North. Great movie. Well, the, th the thing about The Flight of the Phoenix, which is very true of The Dirty Dozen, 
is that he brings in an all-star cast and he gives disparate characters and he gives everybody something to do you know i saw the remake of fight of phoenix and you've got three people who you recognize and everybody else is an extra (laughs) <laughs> Aldrich, Aldrich would never do that. Aldrich, right. would, I mean, in the Dirty Dozen, even the lower six, they all have something, you know. Right. Uh, I, I found it interesting in your book, learning that Donald Sutherland was one of the lower six, right. but obviously really popped. And the scene where he reviews the troops is, is really great. great. And it, again, that's another one of those anti-authoritarian moments where Robert right. Ryan is seething there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's interesting how Aldrich, like John Sturgis in The Great Escape, they had very good eyes for casting. Oh, absolutely. Casting Ernie Borgnine as General Warden and seeing him seeing Reisman's troops in the war games doing what they're doing and kind of getting a wink-wink nod there is right. really part of the fun. And and Robert Weber playing the kind of stiff, board-up-his-ass general you just can't stand and then Ralph Meeker, lo- wonderful Ralph Meeker, the great 40s actor, just uh, when, when he chuckles in that room, you just have to break out laughing. And then George Kennedy's voice. Oh, my God. When George Kennedy spoke, the, 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 the screen reverberated. Right. I love the fact when they were doing the war games and they brilliantly figure out a way to capture Robert Ryan and they had thrown George Kennedy out of the ambulance. But he just had to see it happen, his character. And he goes running up, limping and running. And he sees it at the moment, Bronson captures Robert Ryan. And he's laughing his head off, George Kennedy. He loves it. I think that's one of my favorite moments in the movie. I can't pick one. Oh, yeah. I found it interesting, as you point out in the book, that um, the only actor who was nominated for an Oscar that year in the cast was John Cassavetes. And who does he lose to? (laughs) George Kennedy in Cool Hand Luke. Right, right. Who was brilliant, by the way. Oh, I'm absolutely st- brilliant. I, I want to. Uh, I want to go back to Aldrich a little bit and get sure. your opinion on this, uh, Dwayne. Yeah. I always think that Hollywood thought of Aldrich as just a genre guy, you know, guy who do, who does manly movies that are that are you know adherent to certain genre tropes. Except, I think of Aldrich as the upside down guy, and what I mean by that is he'll take a, tradi- a traditional genre story and turn, turn it, upside it upside down, down. or right, sideways, right. you know. Right. I think that was because Aldrich also was, he had a problem with authority as well. Big he time. Was, he was not a big fan of the suits. Um, you know, and the, and the thing is that I, it, I think it goes to your point about him being underestimated, uh, certainly maybe in Hollywood, but also uh, with fans, because unless you know his filmography to some degree, you don't see those, those, those little pieces of attack, attra- uh, attached tissue between all of his movies you know he was thumbing his nose at authority and the suits and everything and so he was actually he was kind of a little bit of a hippie before hippie you know hippies were even a thing right especially going to that point where you talk about the fact that he came from money Mm -hmm. he came from a sort of authority family he was sort of attached to royalty political royalty not actual royalty um talk a little bit more about about aldrich in terms of um, his career and how, in many ways, I think he was as good as he was, and also sometimes just at he, when he when he missed, he missed big. <laughs> right. What what was it about Aldrich though that 
that that you find the most interesting and because uh, i just i see a propellant in his work that i don't see from other guys like say a don siegel who he might be compared to well it's, it's interesting in the way you phrase that because i agree with every single thing you just said aldridge did indeed come from royalty and came from money his cousin was nelson rockefeller um and early on he was disinherited by his family because he told them i don't want to be a part of his his family was involved in banking in uh, Rhode Island and owned a lot of important companies and money. And he, they said, if you don't follow the family way, we're going to disinherit, disinherit you. And Aldridge said, that's fine. I want to be disinherited. I don't want to do what I was raised to do. And he stood by that. He worked his way up. He had partly disinherited. He had an uncle that worked in the studios and, and his uncle offered him a job in the bottom rung. And he literally worked his way up from there. Now, that thing you mentioned a moment ago about him being a hippie uh, before his time, I don't know if I... Sensibility-wise. Yeah, I don't know if I would necessarily call him a hippie lifestyle-wise, but his, his philosophy and his point of view, very much so because he was a lifelong, dyed-in-the-wool, liberal Democrat that would never, ever take any BS from anybody else. When he started his own production company, he purposely called it, <clears throat> excuse me, Associates and Aldridge. He put the people that worked for him ahead of himself. He, uh, he made films that only Europeans liked and understood. The film that put him on the map was like his third or fourth film. It was uh, Kiss Me Deadly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which we haven't talked about. And that's a really good example. American critics hated it. Um, the author of the original novel, Mickey Spillane, hated it. Didn't understand it. He didn't know why Aldridge had to put the ending in that he did. And European critics caught on real fast. There, you know, there were certain American directors that weren't very heralded in their own country, but were beloved in Europe. You mentioned Don Siegel. He was one of them. Sam Fuller, there's another. And yep. Robert, Robert Aldridge. I would put him in that category, too. And he would later in the decade make the movie Attack with... Uh, Eddie Albert and Lee Marvin and Jack Palance. That's one of the single most underrated films I've ever seen. And it almost got banned from being seen by the U.S. Congress because it portrayed the U.S. military in a negative light. So he, he never ran from a fight. He took on these fights and he once said himself, you know, there was this whole weird rumor about why he wasn't Oscar nominated for the Dirty Dozen for Best Director. And it's often been said it was because he was asked to change the ending of the film and he refused to do it. That's not why he wasn't nominated. That had nothing to do with it. Ken Hyman told me why he wasn't nominated. It was because Hollywood and the Hollywood, um, I don't know, dynasty, whatever it was, hated Aldridge. Aldridge hated them. He famously said, I wouldn't get an Oscar nomination if I directed a biblical epic. Well, he actually did. It was Sodom and Gomorrah, right. which, which, of course... <laughs> Tells you where his sensibilities are. He didn't like Hollywood and Hollywood didn't like him, but somehow he still managed to make the films he wanted to make the way he wanted to make them. And for, and for that alone, I applaud him. Well, he, and, and some of those films are awesome. Well, I would, one of the films I was thinking about while you guys were talking about, and one of the first films I saw of his was Vera Cruz with oh, yeah. Burt Lancaster and uh, yeah, Gary Cooper. And Gary Cooper. And the physicality in that movie is terrific. You know, I always, you know, wonder how directors develop their their confidence shooting action and their understanding of action. I mean, certainly John Sturgis was a terrific action director. Yep. Um, Aldrich in that same class. Don Siegel is always being lauded for his 
his action sequences in Madigan. Uh, but, oh man, that's yeah. that. Those action scenes were incredible. And the only drag with that movie is you could tell the whole thing was shot on a back lot. Nothing about it looked like New York. <laughs> but they they I, shot about twenty five percent of it in New York. I mean, yeah, for establishing shots. I know. Well, no, but, they actually did scenes where they were on New York real estate. I'm from New York. Trust me, I'm Mr. Locations. So am I. I know <laughs> yeah. the one the one scene was shot short, um, not far from where I was born. It was shot in Coney Island. Sure. With, with Michael Martin. Dunn. Michael Dunn, right. Yeah. 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 Now, one, of, one of the things that I purchased as a, um, as a piece of merchandise was the soundtrack album. And I remember the Frank McCarthy poster, which was from the movie, obviously. But I have to say... One of the great pieces of key art. Great pieces of key art. And I remember I always liked the cut on the album which leads up to they're they're climbing up the side of the hill after oh, I know and, and Bronson are driving up to the chateau and you get that first view of the chateau and then you play that little German music da 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 it's just and the first time you, the first time you see that effing chateau holy shit right I mean this is interesting because this is the same time in England when uh, Ken Adam had built the rocket base and you only lived twice. So the, the, the craftsmen in England were used to working big, but this location was and, a real- and, and, yeah. and slowly, that really pissed off Aldridge. They, right. they took their sweet time and he hated that. Now this area- Now isn't that the reason, is just, I'm sorry for jumping in, but isn't that the reason why the movie, you know, went over, over schedule? Yes. If they were waiting on the chateau? Yes. And yeah. when they finished it, they did too good of a job. They couldn't blow it up. So they had to tear out the midsection and rebuild it. <laughs> so so um, as, uh, Borum Wood is the main base for the movie. I yeah. assume they shot all the interiors there. Was the location of the chateau on the Borum Wood property? Um, if it wasn't directly on the pro well, I'm sure they did some of the interiors there, but um, it wasn't too far. <clears throat> One thing I remember Ken Hyman told me that when they blew up the chateau, they were getting all kinds of calls from 30 miles away. They were about 30 miles north of London. And people from London and closer were calling, thinking they were getting invaded. Because a lot of people living there had been through the Blitz in London. And they thought, oh, God, here we go again. And, and they had to assuage everybody's fears that, no, 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 we're just shooting a movie. Um, I don't. <laughs> I don't know off the top of my head. It's in the book, but I don't remember off the top of my head the exact location of uh, where they sat. So they my, my recollection was that it was in the neighborhood of Borumwood. Yeah, I think, so, I think so too. They also, you know, it wasn't just the chateau. They, you know, they built a lake, a full functioning lake. It, it, it's just incredible. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about some of the other actors. Uh, you know, we talk about the hipness of the script. Certainly, casting Jim Brown to play Jefferson was a huge coup for the production. I always think that whenever you can cast a beloved sports star, you know, if it's the right role, uh, it's a good thing. And it, it, probably Jim Brown's casting was a terrific boon to the production. Oh, absolutely. And by the way, he was on record as saying in, in his autobiography, which is a great read, by the way, he was on record as saying he absolutely loved the role. It, he's, he's always said it's the, he you know he made a lot of movies in the late 60s and throughout the 70s but he said of all the films i ever made that was my favorite the guy he said this character was very unlike any character being offered black actors in america at the time 
he was a natural leader. He was a quiet leader. He, he was strong and, and um, personable. And we weren't being offered those roles, he said. Now, what's interesting is he compared himself to Sidney Poitier in his book. And Poitier turned down the role. Um, and he said, and I love the way Jim Brown phrased this. He goes, you know, Sidney did a lot for us. He was very important, but he was always a nice guy. You would never see Sidney Poitier play any kind of, you know, sexy stud. And he goes, that's where guys like me and Fred Williamson came in. <laughs> and by the that. way, by the way, I've met and interviewed Fred. He would agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interesting thing is, and this is something that was really a revelation in your book, was the fact that um, that Jim Brown's professional football career ended because of the Dirty Dozen, because yep. of the length of that shoot. And Art Modell, I guess the, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, mm -hmm. refused to uh, give him the time off. And, and I guess Modell later regretted that deeply. Yeah, well, he famously said he had, um, he gave Brown an ultimatum. He said, you either come back in time for training or we're going to fine you a hundred bucks a day. Now at the time, and Modell said it himself, that's lunch money. It's nothing. But what, what, what Jim Brown disliked was that he gave him an ultimatum at all. Um, he had said, now this is interesting because I've read a lot of the media attention that was given at the time. And all the famous sports reporters were constantly writing about having columns on a regular basis. Will Jim Brown come back in time for the 67 season? We don't know. You know, he was interviewed a few times. What's interesting, and I love finding this out, and I never knew this, about a month before they started shooting the, uh, the Dirty Dozen, which I think they started shooting in eight. They started shooting. There was a local African-American newspaper called the Los Angeles Sentinel, and Jim Brown wrote an article for that paper, and it was called Why I'm Going to Quit the NFL by wow. Jim Brown. Now, that was long before all this controversy started. And if, you know, most of the news report, sports reporters in those days were white, they're not going to read the Los Angeles Sentinel because it really answered the question before they even asked it. And it was on the set of the movie, he gave a press conference and he said, it was fully my intention to come back for the 67 season. Unfortunately, I can't, I'm retiring. He was 29 years old. Okay. And you can't buy publicity like that. You know what I mean? Oh, sure, so, sure. so by the time the movie came out, everybody's drooling. It's like, ooh, what is this movie that Jim Brown, the greatest footballer, fullback anybody had ever seen, running back, excuse me, had ever seen, quit the NFL to make? This got to be some kind of movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The other I, I, got a couple, I, I got a couple of questions that, that have always sort of puzzled me, and maybe you can answer them. Okay. Um, one was... Do you, and I don't think you mentioned it in the book. If, if you did, maybe I didn't remember it. Clint Walker never really quite gets his uh, exit scene in the movie. Or uh, he's, he's it, it, you know, in the, in the film, you know, he and uh, Bravos are, uh, you know, they're trying to ward off the, uh, the Germans at, the, at that crossroads. And there was, you know, a pretty fair amount of action in there. But you never see what happens to Clint Walker. Do you know why that that isn't in the film? Did anybody ever tell you about that? Yeah, Clint Walker did. <laughs> I okay. Guess, yeah, um, they were planning on having him, as they do in the movie. In, I'm sorry, in the, in the original novel, in two different places. They don't really deal with the character's uh, Native American background all that much. And what was going to happen was, 
when Clint Walker's when Posey was obviously overwhelmed by the approaching Nazis, he rips off his shirt, smears himself with war paint, does a rain dance, and starts firing all over the place until he gets shot down. <laughs> now, that wasn't done because what Aldridge wanted to do, and by the way, in the script, when they get to the battle sequence at the end after the chateau was blown up, there are almost handwritten notes saying, this will be left up to the director. Um, we really can't put this in detail because it'll be on the location that we will discover how it's going to be shot. Now, what Aldridge decided to do was to have Jim Brown, you know, dump the grenades into the ventilators, right? Well, that took up a lot of screen time. And the reason why they don't show and never shot Posey's death was simply because the movie was running way too long. They had cut out a lot of other stuff too. And the way they kind of got, oh, and I know a lot of film fans have asked that question a million times. How come they don't show Posey's dead? Maybe Posey's still alive. Aldridge's thinking was clearly Posey and Bravos are right next to each other. Bravos gets shot and killed. If Bravos is shot and killed, so is Posey. And at the end of the film, when they do the crawl of all the dead, Clint Walker is the last one you see. So obviously he didn't survive. They just don't show it. There right. are, you brought up something, um, Steve, that used to bug the hell out of me. That was one of them. You don't see Posey dying. And th the scene during the war game, when Bronson and several of the other dozen are inside Robert Ryan's headquarters, and you see them passing something to each other, and Ernest Borgnine sees it, and he laughs to himself and says he's got to leave, okay? I never knew what that was about. It drove me crazy. <laughs> I found out by reading the script, what they're passing to each other was part of plan B, which is, those were called uh, time, time pencils. They're explosives. So if they weren't able to capture Robert Ryan the way Bronson does, they were gonna all leave and plant those time pencils throughout the headquarters and blow everybody up. <laughs> But that's wow. never explained. They just show them passing it back and forth. Now, Borgnine's character, General Warden, he knows what that is. That's why he decides to get the hell out of there. But it's never explained. And thankfully, I got that answered for me. And I hope I answered it for the readers, too. Well, the other, the other thing that was interesting to me, and, and I noticed this even when I, when I was a, a younger man, when I saw the movie in the theater, as a guy who grew up watching combat every week, like Steve Rubin and everybody else from our time period, Me I, kind of, I love that show. I kind of got used to the idea of tactics. Right. And I was always surprised that when once the shooting starts, there would only be one German at a time uh, <laughs> racing to the front of the chateau to deal with what's going on. You know, there was no radio contact. There was, you know, that you hear gunfire and you respond to it. Why was it? Why was it that we were seeing a ger the Germans being killed only one at a time, as opposed to a squad or a platoon of Germans? Okay. Uh, responding. Yeah. Okay. First of all, if you remember, once 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 all the fighting starts, the first thing Bronson does is he shoots the radio operator. Right. Um, so there's nobody there to handle the radio, and then most of the chateau gets blown up with everybody in it. So anybody who's now I'm making excuses to a certain extent. But anybody who's there just happens to be there. There's also another side thing. Most of the um, centuries were relaxing in another part of the chateau. And that's where they're coming from, one by one. That's where uh, Richard Jekyll shoots one, John Cassavetti shoots one. And 
one of the problems, I love getting this information from Dale Dye. I didn't interview Dale Dye, but Dale Dye did the DVD commentary. And as much as he loved the film, he said, logistically, the movie is a joke. There are a lot of right. really st stupid things done in the film. He goes, why is it every single extra who plays a German sentry in the movie is like in their 40s or 50s? What the hell is that? Where's, you know, <laughs> I also like their youth. And, well, and, and, and he pointed out something else. The shiny helmets they all wore during the attack? No way. And, and, and all the lights that were in the chateau, that would be one of the first things you do is put those lights out. All that stuff. Yeah, I did find it interesting. He said about the helmets. You know, they they don't need the helmets. They're not an undergoing an artillery barrage. They're sneaking into a chateau. Right. But no, you know, no, they may have they may have needed it when they landed their parachute. But that's it. You know. Right. Right. Uh, speaking of parachutists, uh, another question was always, whatever happened to Trini, Trini Lopez? Lopez? Right. And you actually solved that issue, uh, explaining that. Uh, he also had to get back to the States, but he was receiving a lot of pressure from Frank Sinatra. Who was his boss. He was under contract to Reprise Records, which is Frank Sinatra's company. And so he had dinner in England one night when Sinatra was in town. And, and Sinatra, and by the way, this is an important part to point out. Sinatra not only advised him, Sinatra hated Robert Aldridge. They had made a movie together called um, Four for Texas. A movie I liked, but nobody else did. Um, and, and consequently, he figured this would be a good way to get back at Robert Aldridge. But he told Trini Lopez, look, you're at the height of your career right now. The longer you take making this movie, the more money you're going to lose in concert and recording. So see if you can get yourself out of the film. Well, he went to Aldridge and Aldridge said bye bye. And, and he wrote him, he wrote him out. There's, there's several versions of how and why that happened. I mean, how that happened. But one of my favorites is <clears throat> a friend of Telly Savalas told me that Trini Lopez was being a bit of a prima donna on the set anyway. He was complaining constantly. Um, he had to wear the 40-pound pack, pack that you know they're supposed to do, and he didn't like the weather and all this kind of stuff. And so after one um, rather obnoxious rant, <laughs> Telly Savalas turned to, oh, excuse me, Robert Aldridge turned to Lucas Heller, who was there on the set to make revisions, leaned over to him and went, kill him. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what they did. <laughs> now, the, the other actor that we've 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 talked a little bit about, but I think is also part of the heart of the movie, is John Cassavetes. I mean, oh, my Cass favorite thing in the film. Yeah, Love John him. Cassavetes is just—he's the perfect counterpoint to Lee Marvin. And tell us a little bit about where John Cassavetes was in his career at that time. Well, like almost everybody in the film, every actor, uh, the um, producer, director, they. The success of the Dirty Dozen just skyrocketed them in the industry, everyone imaginable. And that includes John Cassavetti, because he was more in the basement than anybody else when the film started. He didn't want to make the movie at all. He didn't like the script. He didn't like the story. Ken Hyman talked him into it. And there was a very good reason why he was able to do that. He hadn't done anything in like two or three, no more than that, three or four years, because he was blacklisted. He had gotten into a big fight with Stanley Kramer, who at the time was one of the hierarchs in higher, was in the hierarchy of filmmaking. And that was it. He, you know, he got, in, he got in a physical fist fight with Stanley Kramer um, over a film they, uh, that Cassavetti directed and Kramer, Kramer took it away from him. Anyway, he, Kramer made sure Cassavetti's couldn't work anywhere. He said, Cassavetti said, I couldn't work for Looney Tunes if I wanted to. And, and he goes, I tried. His wife was getting work, Gina, Jenna Rowland. He would get an occasional TV shot, but for the most part, nobody wanted him in feature films. 
Ken Hyman wanted him. And as Ken Hyman told me, you know, Cassavetes, he's a hell of a director, great writer, wonderful actor, but he's also a great big pain in the ass because he, he was making all these weird demands about why, why he, you know, once they started filming it and also why he doesn't want to be in it. And Ken Hyman, he goes, we almost got in a fist fight. He said, I said, look, John, you got a movie you want to make. You can't finish it. You got no money. Take the money from the dirty dozen and finish the movie you're making. That movie was Faces. And that's- By, by, the, by the way, Dwayne, speaking of money, do you have any idea how the salaries broke down in the movie? I, I assume Lee Marvin got the lion's share of the money. Oh, I asked Ken Hyman and he refused to tell me. <laughs> he goes, I asked him, I was like, you know how much money Lee Marvin made for the Dirty Dozen? He goes, yes, I do, but I'm not going to tell you. I think <laughs> the first million dollar payday Lee Marvin got, believe it or not, was for Paint Your Wagon, which was like two years later. But for uh, the Dirty Dozen, I think he got 350000 Um, because Robert Ryan's son told me he got, I think, like two hundred or 250000 mainly because of his name. He didn't do a lot of leads in the 60s, but he had great name recognition, and he was often hired just for that. Sure. Uh, so that's my guess in terms of how much um, Lee Marvin made and, and uh, Robert Ryan comparably. Um, a lot of it had to do with their name recognition. You know, I can guarantee you, Donald Sutherland didn't make anywhere near that much money. You know, no. the, other, the other thing that's interesting about that movie that I think sometimes we forget is at the time, when you look at the poster and you look at the, you know, the, the casting block of credits, this was an all-star cast in, 60, in a 60s context. Right. You know, if you were a guy like my dad, who was a greatest generation guy who liked manly films... He would see all of those guys and he said, I have to go see this. Now, of right. course, the material was appealing and he dragged me to see it. And by the way, not kicking and screaming either. He just said, we're going. You, but, got, you got a smart dad. Well, you know, we used to watch combat together as well. So but uh, but the thing is, to to the audience, when you see that cast, it had the same sort of effect like. Um, the, great, you know, the, the Great Escape, the Great Escape, or Battle of the Bulge, or or the Longest, Day. Longest Day to some, and so that was also part of the hook of selling a war movie was the cast and who was in it. Right. Uh, and by the way, just for trivia, uh, Cassavetes and Marvin worked together uh, a couple of years earlier for Don Siegel on The Killers. The Killers. Although Which, I don't, well, I don't that's, that's a really good example of something too. That was made as a TV movie. Yes, it wasn't a feature film. But because no, Kennedy had Kennedy had just been assassinated, it wound up being released theatrically instead. Yeah. So, but I don't think that that Marvin and Cassavetes really spent a whole lot of time in this. They were in the same movie, but they weren't a lot of the same scenes. I mean, he sort of Marvin and Clue Gulliger, the other killer, show up and they you know they shoot Cassavetes. Right. I'm not spoiling anything. Um, it's it's and, the first five minutes of the movie. Yeah, exactly. Think think about the fact of world war ii as an arena no other war ever has provided the type of stories that world war ii has provided in terms of epic quality i mean you know the apocalypse now is, is a bit of an epic vietnam film but a very different kind of a movie right. and you can't really do an epic vietnam movie because nobody gives a shit about it it's right. like but world war ii the stakes were big and i still think it's still possible to do epic World War II movies, and we see them still. Well, it's not as recent, but they did it with Saving Private Ryan, which is yes. an incredible film. 
believe it or not, believe it or not, Saving Private Ryan is 25 years old. And that's what I mean. I went, to, I went to see that movie over Memorial Day weekend out here, by the way. And when I, when I realized when it was made, I was I was kind of shocked because it's you know if you'd asked me, it'd say, oh, that was like 10, 15 years ago. Right. It's well, it, you know it 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 really sticks to you that movie. Yeah, well, we, it's amazing. We've, we've had a terrific discussion. We've been having an animated discussion with Dwayne Epstein. The title of his book, which you have to run out and get, because this is just pure fun as he dissects and analyzes and unearths so much great information. I call it a forensic history, which you did, and so much fun. The book is titled Killing Generals, The Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time, and I don't think we can disagree with that whatsoever. Uh, Dwayne, you're always fun to be with, and we talk. We all have the same favorite movies, and you're going to be a regular guest on my show because... We cannot have that not happen. Do I have time for one more real quick anecdote? Of course. Okay, cool. I love finding this out. When Donald Sutherland was cast and he, you know, he had that scene impersonating the general purely by accident. It was supposed to be Clint Walker. Clint Walker didn't want to do it because he thought it would would be denigrating the Native Americans. So Robert Aldridge pointed across the table and said, hey, you with the big ears, you do it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Donald Sutherland told me that story. Now, what happened was when they finished filming, Robert Aldridge was so impressed with Donald Sutherland, he sent a memo to Ken Hyman saying, look, I know you've got the advertising for this movie pretty well sewn up and how, how the credits are going to work. Can I implore you to put Donald Sutherland in those credits between Telly Savalos and Clint Walker? Because they're all listed alphabetically. And I asked Donald Sutherland about that. I got to interview him. He was really kind of pissed off about it. He didn't know whether they did or not. And, and what he said to me was, well, if it was up to Ken Hyman, my guess would be he didn't because he wasn't very imaginative. Now, what's interesting was, I, you can't see it because it's not a video podcast, but I've got the poster behind me. And Donald Sutherland's name is not on it. However, there was a separate ad campaign that was done, which I would, I loved. I wanted it to be the cover of the book. It's an image of a hand grenade. And in each of the fragments of the hand grenade are all the cast, including at the very bottom, Donald Sutherland. So he did get into some of the advertising because Robert Aldridge thought he was worthy of it. He was that good. That's oh, yeah. and, it way, made his, and it made his career too. And by the Absolutely way, it did. And by the way, three years later, uh, we see Donald and Telly and Kelly's Heroes, That's which right. I think is also a movie that probably was inspired by some of the irreverence of the Dirty Dozen. Oh, big time. And, you big know, the biggest time. difference in the Dirty Dozen, they did what they did for personal redemption. In Kelly's Heroes, they did what they did for pure greed. Pure greed. Absolutely. And I'll tell you something else. Donald Sutherland told me this. Robert Altman was casting MASH, and he wasn't sure if Donald Sutherland could do comedy. And so when his agent told him he was up for the role, Donald Sutherland said, send Robert Altman the Dirty Dozen. Let him see me in that movie. And, and Altman did. He became Hawkeye Pierce. Oh, that's, Isn't that cool? That's very, yeah, very cool. Well, gentlemen, uh, this has been terrific. Uh, we can always go longer, but we've got to cut it short tonight. Uh, Dwayne Epstein, always a pleasure. Steve Mitchell, my comrade in the trenches, always good to hear from you. Likewise. Nice talking with you, Dwayne. 
Same here, Steve. Always been, a pleasure. You've and been we'll, listening. You've been listening. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I just was going to say we got to talk more often on Facebook, Steve. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> okay. absolutely. You've been Anytime. To, you've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. Have a good night. See you at the movies. Thank you. <laughs>